I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. At the end of May, uh, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein appointed former FBI Director Robert Mueller to investigate allegations of collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russian government. Since his appointment, the Mueller investigation has raised a series of constitutional questions, including whether the president can be prosecuted for obstruction of justice. Joining us to discuss these important questions are two of America's leading thinkers on constitutional law and national security law. Uh, our returning champion, Laura Donahue, is professor of law at Georgetown Law School and director of Georgetown Center on National Security and the Law. She joined us for a We the People podcast with Alan Dershowitz on this subject a few months ago. And Cypher Cash is James Monroe, distinguished professor of law, and Paul G. Mahoney, research professor of law at the University of Virginia Law School and author of important books and articles about the presidency and the Constitution. Laura Sai, thank you so much for joining. Thank you very much for having me back on. It's nice to be back. It's great to be back, Jeff. Wonderful. Okay, well, let's jump right in. Professor Alan Dershowitz has repeated uh, his claim, which we began to debate on the last podcast, that the president can never be guilty of obstruction of justice. Uh, Laura, tell us about your reaction to that claim. Well, I, I find that an extraordinary claim on the grounds that part of the founding of the United States was the idea that nobody is above the law. If you think back to Charles I and his uh, conviction by the Rump Parliament, he said it was not constitutional in the context of Britain. The founders specifically included impeachment in the U.S. Constitution to ensure that nobody would be above the law, including and particularly the President of the United States. So if you look at U.S. law, at least as a statutory matter, it is a criminal offense to obstruct justice. And by obstruction of justice, the way we understand that, according to you know, Black's Law Dictionary, for instance, is any interference in the orderly administration of law and justice. And so if you look at the code uh, under 18 U.S.C. 1515b, it says that no one in the United States may corruptly or by threats of force or any threatening letter of communications influence, obstruct, or impede the due and proper administration of the law under which any pending proceeding is being conducted before any federal department or agency or Congress. And there's a case that we look to called United States versus Warshak, where the court laid out three criteria that have to be met for that particular offense to occur. So the proceeding must be underway, the defendant must be aware of the proceeding, and the defendant must have intentionally endeavored corruptly to influence, obstruct, or impede that pending proceeding. So, you know, there, there is, it's kind of interesting. So on the one hand, we have this crime, and we have this concept in America that nobody is above the law, including the president, and in some cases particularly the president, because of the legacy of English history. On the other hand, we have a pardon power that's also constitutionally built into the Constitution uh, that is, you know, widely seen. It does have some limits, and we can get into those later in the discussion, but uh, that, that gives the president the power to do exactly what this is saying is illegal, right? So there's kind of this contradiction, some tension between the constitutional provisions here, both the limits on the president and the impeachment powers, uh, and then on the other hand, the power to pardon. Thanks so much for that. Sai, let's... Uh defer for a moment the specific question of whether the facts of this case might add up to an obstruction case against President Trump. But 
What do you make of President of Professor Dershowitz's claim that the president can never be guilty of obstruction of justice? The position, no, I don't. I don't think even Professor Dershowitz is arguing that the president's above the law. Of course, the president, as everyone knows, is subject to impeachment, and no one, no one denies that. The, the, the question is whether or not the statute applies to the president, whether he's violated it, and 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 saying that someone is above the law or someone is not above the law just doesn't answer those questions. Uh, Laura has adverted to impeachment. Uh, Laura's adverted to the pardon power and the exceptions to it. But of course, the impeachment exception is in. Uh, in the Constitution, uh, as is the exception or the, the requirement that it relate to federal offenses, there is no exception for presidential self-pardon, right? So th they're not on the same plane. The fact that there are restrictions on the pardon power uh, written in the Constitution doesn't speak to whether there are uh, there there aren't you know that, 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 there, that there is another restriction related to the president's ability to pardon himself. So. I don't think the position on that either Professor Dershowitz is advocating, which I don't agree with, or the one that John and I are advocating is one that the president is above the law. I think there's two ways of understanding what he's saying. And I think Professor Dershowitz is talking about the president being personally prosecutable for obstruction, because I, 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 I'm assuming that he agrees that the president can be impeached and removed for obstruction of justice. Um, that was, uh, you know, President Clinton was um, impeached for obstruction of justice. And, you know, there was a vote in the Senate. It didn't, it didn't pass. But there, I don't think anyone argued that the president couldn't be removed for obstruction of justice. And then, of course, Richard Nixon, the, the House Judiciary Committee drafted articles of impeachment that would have um, if passed by the House, would have impeached him for obstruction of justice as well. So I take um, Professor Dershowitz as saying something about the president's amenability to prosecution, and I, I, you know, I think it's more complicated than Laura does. But I think, I think uh, Professor Dershowitz is wrong. I think what Professor Dershowitz is saying is that the Constitution implicitly um, renders the president, you know, uh, incapable of being proceeded against criminally. For any official act he takes um, that arises out of the Constitution. So that is to say, if there's a constitutional power given to the president, that can't form the basis of a criminal charge. And um, I, there's there's an appeal to that. Um, you know, the idea would be that if you give someone the pardon power, you don't want to give Congress the authority to say that all pardons are illegal. And so I, I don't think it, you can say that, uh, you know, that Congress could pass such a statute. The obstruction statute isn't such a statute. It doesn't purport to say that every exercise of some presidential power is illegal and therefore uh, can result in jail time for the president. Um, but once you know, once you decide that there, you know, perhaps is some scope of immunity for certain presidential acts, immunity from criminal prosecution, then it becomes more difficult. I, I ultimately think Laura is right, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't phrase it in the broad terms that she does. Okay, that's very helpful. Uh, so I hear you both expressing questions about uh, President Trump's lawyer's John Dowd's statement that the president cannot obstruct justice because he's the chief law enforcement officer under the Constitution under any circumstances. But let us now get into the facts of the Mueller investigation. Sai, you wrote a great uh, New York Times column on December 4th where you referred to the wayward tweet uh, which led to allegations that President Trump had obstructed justice by impeding the investigation into the Russia 
meddling. Uh, I had to fire General Flynn because he lied to the vice president of the FBI. He's pled guilty to these lies. It's a shame because his actions during the transition were lawful. There was nothing to hide. Laura, the, qu the question is to you. If you were uh, Robert Mueller investigating a potential obstruction case based on the president's knowledge of Flynn's lies to the FBI and then attempts to fire Comey to stop that investigation, what would the factual uh, claim look like? Well, so that's difficult to say because we don't have access to what the Mueller uh, uh, investigation has access to, you know, in terms of the information that they've uh, turned up in the course of in the course of their study of this matter. So I, I'm not sure exactly what they know. Um, and that fact pattern very much matters in terms of whether somebody has technically violated an obstruction of justice statute um, under the U.S. Code. One thing that I, I did want to touch on is also the non-prosecutorial power, because we've we brought up, and maybe we'll just kind of bookmark this to return to later in the conversation, but the pardon powers, you know, when they were introduced at the time uh, the, the Constitution was drafted, the founders contemplated whether they should include uh, treason, um, that actually treason was an exception to the pardon powers. So the pardon powers can only be exercised when an individual, um, when, when an individual has been convicted of violating or is about to be convicted of violating a federal statute, um, and it can't relate to impeachment. But I would note that Washington, D.C. is a federal entity, so if actions occurred in Washington, D.C., and it's in violation of D.C. law, we might still be in the federal realm. When they contemplated the pardon power, they, they initially thought, well, should we also uh, make it explicit that treason, you know, you can't pardon somebody for treason for the president because they were concerned that the president might actually engage in treasonous activity. And the response to that was, well, no, because in the case of treason, uh, we can actually have an impeachment and then that individual can be prosecuted for what they did while in office. So in response to in, uh, Professor Dershowitz's claim that you can't be prosecuted for obstruction of justice, I, it, it just doesn't you know, fall properly from the course of history in terms of how these powers were contemplated and, and developed into, into the Constitution. Thank you for that. Uh, si, I'll ask you to talk about the facts of the investigation as we know them. In your New York Times piece, you said no responsible federal prosecutor would dream of stepping into a trial court with such a weak case, namely that Mr. Trump escalated the obstruction by firing Comey because of the Russia inquiry after having knowingly obstructed justice when he asked the FBI to let Flynn go because he was a good guy. Tell us more about why you think, based on the facts that we know already publicly, the case for obstruction is weak. Well, from just those two facts, I, I didn't I, I didn't see enough there to convince me that there wasn't a, there was a corrupt intent or there was use of force or threats on the part of the president. And so, what we have is a president asking Mueller to go easy on a friend. As we said in the op-ed, anybody can ask an investigator or a prosecutor to go easy on a friend, and that's not obstruction. I don't think that's uh, that's that's inherently corrupt or involves a, you know use of force or threat. And then you know the removal. You know we we speculated that the reason why Trump removed Mueller is that Mueller, Trump moved removed Comey. Was that Comey refused to say publicly what he had told the president privately, which is that the president wasn't himself under investigation at a time when many people were saying the president was under investigation. Um, and of course, there are other there were other reasons to remove uh, Mr. Comey besides that. So, given that there you know are multiple reasons to to remove Comey, given that Trump was 
just asking for leniency for obviously his friend. I didn't, I don't, I didn't, I and John didn't believe there was enough there to show um, any force or threat or, or a corrupt motive. Um, you know, we said, that, you know, any, any, any father or mother could ask for leniency for their friend. The president did more when he fired Comey, but as we point out, the investigation is continuing apace. Thanks so much for that. Laura, uh, if you could respond to Sai, that would be great. And in the course of responding, tell us what facts do you think would have to emerge to make a really strong obstruction case, and what would that strong obstruction case look like? Okay, so and, you know, in the statute, I see this differently from Sai. I think it's a much stronger case than, than he's allowing. So corrupt in U.S. statute means anything done with an improper purpose. Right. And this idea of what the criteria are that have to be met, look, a proceeding has to be underway, the defendant has to be aware of it, and they must have intentionally endeavored to influence it. By firing Comey, right, that, that's an affirmative step towards that interrupted that proceeding. Now, did President Trump know the proceeding was underway? Yes. Right. Of course. So and was it a legitimate proceeding? Well, the courts have recognized that agencies investigative functions are included in the definition of a proceeding. There's a case on this from the Third Circuit, United States versus Leo. Um, a grand jury investigation also demonstrates a pending proceeding. And we that's in the United States responds. Um, and hours before the president fired Comey, CNN found out that a grand jury, that grand jury subpoenas had been issued to former National Security Advisor, that's uh, to Michael Flynn's associates, that were seeking business records relevant to the probe and to the Russian interference in those elections. So the president clearly knew about the proceeding. You know, Sean Spicer had stated in February um, that the White House counsel had briefed the president about what was happening and about his contacts with the Russian ambassador of the United States. The president himself repeatedly referenced the ongoing counterintelligence investigations. He asked only three times that we know on record uh, whether uh, he was actively under investigation. Uh, uh, he asked Comey whether he was under investigation, whether the president was under investigation. Now, whether he intended to disrupt the administration of justice, that's a, a little bit more gray. I would agree here with Sai on that narrow point, because on the one hand, you have this letter that fired Comey stating um, that even as he stated, I know I'm not the subject of the investigation, and then he cites to Rod Rosenstein's letter talking about the Clinton email investigation and Comey's actions, saying that Comey wasn't able to effectively lead the Bureau and so on. Um, but on the other hand, you know, there's a real elephant in the room. The FBI investigation was at this critical juncture. It was increasingly drawing attention in the media. Um, according to the New York Times, Trump was venting his anger you know, about the probe to others, you know, in the White House and saying something has to stop this, um, that he had talked to Vice President Mike Pence about it, he talked to McGahn, he talked to Jared Kushner, you know, and other people, he reportedly discussed it with Steve Bannon and Rince Priebus, um, he said it's a total hoax, when will this charade end, you know, and you can't ignore all of this evidence that's out there that he wanted this investigation to just go away. Um, and on top of that, he then asked Comey to drop the investigation. This is not a parent to a child. This is the president of the United States to the director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation who is actively investigating a potential act. Um, of treason against the United States and of other very, very serious criminal actions. So I think it has to be given more weight than Sai is giving it in terms of the level at which this affected that investigation and the purpose behind the firing of, of the former director. Sai, your response to that, and also tell us, does the obstruction statute in particular apply to the president? And also, what about the Logan Act? So, you know, I think no one denies that there was an investigation afoot. 
And so I think, you know, Laura's quite right about that. But I, I haven't really understood anyone to be saying that there wasn't an investigation afoot or that it was, you know, at a critical stage or a non-critical stage. My argument or the argument that John and I made was about whether the president's interference was corrupt. And I don't know if, you know, Laura said anything that that moved me in that regard. Um, so so imagine so imagine that, you know, I'm being investigated and the president feels that I'm innocent and he tells the investigator, I think this is a waste of resources. Don't investigate Prakash. I think that would clear, you know, I I think we can clearly imagine a scenario where the president's involvement in an ongoing investigation wouldn't be corrupt. And once we decide that, once we decide that the president has constitutional authority to to end the prosecution um, without running afoul of this statute, uh, assuming it applies to him, then it just turns on whether we think that this particular uh, decision on the part of the president or these two particular decisions on the part of the president were corrupt or not. And and you know I think uh, some people are more apt to find that the president uh, engaged in corruption and, and other people um, uh, are less inclined. Uh, you know, I I didn't think that, you know, what the president did here was clearly corrupt. I'm not saying that it couldn't have been. I'm just saying that what we know so far doesn't mean that it's corrupt. George Washington ordered the halt of several prosecutions while he was president. I don't think, given what I know about those uh, uh, those orders to prosecutors, that they were corrupt. Right, not every decision to end a prosecution will necessarily be corrupt. Uh, your second question about the statute um, raises an interesting question. Right, the statute talks about obstruction of justice, but there's nothing in the statute that indicates that uh, constitutional acts of the president, or for that matter, constitutional acts of the courts, um, come within the meaning of the statute. And you might you might very well suppose that under the avoidance canon. The courts would not want to read the statute as encompassing the constitutional acts of the president or the courts in the course of using their constitutional powers. Because if you did, you'd have a very serious constitutional question of the sort uh, that uh, uh, Mr. Dershowitz is raising. I ultimately don't agree with that interpretation, but there's the separate statutory question, right? Which is, does the statute actually cover the president or, you know, for that matter, the courts, or for that matter, any any set of prosecutors who might decide not to go forward with the prosecution. Imagine a U.S. attorney who says, "I could go after this person, um, but they might contribute to my campaign going forward. If I run for public office, I'm not going to. Or I could go after this person, but it will raise, you know, it will uh, it will detract from my public standing, so I'm not going to. You know, I I I don't think it's at all far fetched to think that." U.S. prosecutors, federal prosecutors, take into account the political consequences to their future when deciding whether to prosecute. That might very well be deemed corrupt. Um, I don't know if the statute applies to them. Thanks so much for that, uh, Laura. Your response: uh, uh, Does the statute apply to the president? And I'm going to throw the Logan Act into there as well, that which uh, prohibits uh, consorting with foreign powers. Tell us about how that might fit into the mix. Okay, so. 
to respond to, to Cy's point, I, I actually think there's an enormous difference between non-prosecution and interfering in an investigation. Those are two different things, just like the pardon power tends to be different from the non-prosecutorial power. So you know, there's an interesting case on point here called U.S. versus Cox from 1965. Um, and in this case, um, it was Harold Cox, who had been, I don't know if you recall, he was appointed to the federal judge uh, in Mississippi by President Kennedy, kind of to appease Senator James Eastland. Um, well, he, he presided over a case where you had two African-Americans who testified against the registrar of Clark County in Mississippi. In this case, it was aimed at securing African-American voting rights under the 14th Amendment and the Civil Rights Act. Uh, and in this case, the, the, the president direct, basically directed the non-prosecution of the two individuals in this case. And when this came to the court, the court said, well, yes, uh, you can order the non-prosecution here, but the logic really matters. So first they said, look, the Constitution requires an indictment as a predicate to prosecuting a capital or infamous crimes, right? And the purpose is to protect individuals from jeopardy, except on a basic finding a probable cause by a group of fellow citizens, you know, and to protect against the oppressive actions of a prosecutor or a court, right? But they said, look, when the executive is... Uh, acting when an executive officer, like a prosecutor, is acting in that capacity with the grand jury, they are no longer a member of the executive branch, right? They're acting in a judicial capacity, right? So when the indictment is handed down, once that is done, then at that moment, when the decision to prosecute follows from that, then that's the moment at which the president kind of can interfere and say, no, you know, now you're working for me and I'm directing the non-prosecution in this case. Um, and the, the logic here is that separation of powers prevents the courts um, from interfering in an executive function. And that was an executive function there when the, when the president said that. And there was a, a, a part concurrence, part dissent in that case where they said, well, look, it's the moment at which the indictment is signed, right? And after the indictment signed, now the prosecutor is acting in an executive capacity. Well, that's very different than trying to shape an investigation during the investigation to try to protect one's friends. When we're talking about that, then we're in a realm of rule of law and questions that really have to do with exactly how we think about the law and the prosecution of justice generally in a society. And I think that's a very different issue. Now, one response to that is to say, look, if the president does this with some regularity directing prosecution or directing non-prosecution. Um, so there, there have been other cases, Jewels of the Princess of Orange. You know, the Attorney General at that time was Tawny. He later became Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Well, in Jewels of the Princess of Orange, the question was, was could the president direct the non-prosecution of an individual who had brought Jewels into the United States? in this case, Constant Polari, and, you know, as Attorney General, Tony said, well, yes, he can direct that non-prosecution. Well, if that's abused, then there are a couple things that can happen. First of all, the president can be impeached, and second, you have the Madisonian check, right? People can just vote him out of office. But that function can only occur when the individual is acting in that capacity, and not in a way that's undermining the concept of the rule of law, right? So the idea of shaping this investigation as it's going along, and when it looks like information is being dug up that might implicate either the president or his family or his advisors, then at that point interfering, that's a very different circumstance that we're contemplating. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Sai, some, uh, some, some, some final thoughts on, on this obstruction claim in response to Laura. 
Yeah. So, I, you know, Laura made some very interesting points, and she mentioned this United States versus Cox case, and she mentioned the separation of powers. Um, my understanding is there's, you know, this isn't a separation of powers question. The special prosecutor is in the executive branch, um, and I don't know that the president, uh, you know, interfered in the way that the U.S. versus Cox case discussed when he, you know, when he removed Mueller. So I don't, I don't really see the separation of powers issue. That that Laura sees, and and I still think there's a there's an open question as to whether or not the statute applies to the president, or for that matter, the acts of judges, or for that matter, the acts of prosecutors. So, Cy, we know that a, we know that. A, can I just ask? I'm curious, actually, about this from Cy, because we know a grand jury investigation was underway, and we know that this interfered with the grand jury operations. And when the special prosecutor is actually working with the grand jury, then they're an officer of the court and separation of powers would say that the president can't interfere in that process at that point. It's only after the indictment is sealed. So that's the separation of powers question. Well, I'm, so, I'm, I'm yeah. genuinely curious what your, what your position is on that. Yeah, you're, but this would suggest that the president could never fire a prosecutor as long as a case was before a grand jury. Right? And I can't believe that that's, there's any sort of constitutional principle that says that. So the case that you cite is actually about you know whether you can whether the executive can direct the, the prosecutor not to cooperate with the grand jury, which is you know which is a, a separate question. There, to my knowledge, there's no case that says that the president can't fire a prosecutor when the prosecutor has a case before the grand jury. I mean that that would just mean that if I didn't want to be fired, I would just make sure that there was I always had a case before the grand jury. I I, yeah, I don't I don't see a separation of powers problem. And I still think there's a question, right? I mean, you're focused on the fact that there's an the, the investigation was interfered with. But I guess what I would say is, I I don't doubt that there was an investigation, and I don't doubt that it was in some way burdened by the replacement of of Comey with Mueller. But the the question that we were focused on is whether it's corrupt. And I think if you know, obviously, if you think it is, then you know it's an easy case for the, the statute covering him. If you believe that the statute covers the acts of the president. Uh, thanks so much. Laura, final thoughts on uh, the president and obstruction. Uh, so the key question is, is really identifying an important question, which is whether this was corrupt, because that's anything that's done with an improper purpose. So improper purpose, like exactly what is incorporated in that concept, you know, one could easily argue, you know, disrupting the rule of law, right, or undermining uh, the functioning of the judicial mechanism. So in this case, for instance, a grand jury investigation, that that's actually an improper purpose. Or the whole concept of Nemo Eodex and Casas Sua, right, that we have, this is an ancient principle of common law that was inherited in the United States that we still have today, which is this idea that nobody uh, can be a judge in their own cause, that when the object of the investigation is the president, his family, and his closest advisors, one could argue that disrupting that investigation is an improper purpose, right? So a lot of it does turn on how we understand corruption in this particular case. Great. Well, thank you for that very vigorous and well-mooted uh, discussion of the details of obstruction. Let's turn to the final question, namely, could the president pardon uh, people ranging from Flynn to his son to Jared Kushner to himself. Sai, are there any legal limits to the exercise of the pardon power? And could the president subsequently be prosecuted after leaving office for exercising it uh, corruptly or impermissibly? 
Well, I, I think on the substantive limits on the pardon power, I, I think I agree with what, um, what, with what my friend said before, Laura said before, which is that uh, the president can pardon any federal offense, and these are all federal offenses. Um, and he can certainly, I don't think anyone doubts that if he issued a pardon to his son or if he issued a pardon to Michael Flynn, that the pardon would be valid. Um, John and I argued that the president could pardon himself. That's a more controversial position. Uh, for, I think, reasons that Laura just spoke to, namely the claim that the president can't be a judge of his own cause. Um, I think what I'd say in response is, you know, this common law maxim is violated many places in the Constitution. Many institutions created by the Constitution are, you know, are in fact judging themselves. When, when courts decide that Congress can't uh, decrease the salary of judges, they're basically sitting in judgment of themselves. Judgment of their own rights. So I, I don't, you know, I think there is a there is wisdom to the maxim, and and there's reasons to adopt the maxim when drawing constitutions and statutes. But I don't think um, it's it's an iron uh, ironclad way of reading the Constitution. Um, if 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 John and I are right that the president can pardon himself, um, then he couldn't be prosecuted for corruption, even if the statute did apply to him, and even if, as Laura argued, the president acted corruptly. Um, but that issue will only come up, uh, of course, if a future president decides to prosecute this president, right? Because it's it's rather unlikely that this president will, uh, you know, allow himself to be prosecuted while while in office. Thanks so much for that, Laura. Your thoughts about whether the president can pardon anyone, including himself, and whether he can exercise the pardon power uh, corruptly or permissibly. Yeah, so there are all sorts of limits on the pardon power. As I mentioned, it could be it, it can only be used for federal offenses. Um, it cannot be used in cases of impeachment, um, and certainly the president cannot pardon himself. So I would just as an originalist matter go back to the Constitutional Convention, and then there was they contemplated whether to include an exemption to make it clear that the president could not pardon himself in the case of treason. And the discussion decided no, it wasn't necessary because of impeachment. And if impeachment was enacted for cases of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors, uh, then once impeached, then he could be prosecuted specifically for treason, right? So, so the founders contemplated, could the president be prosecuted? Um, or would the pardon power present uh, kind of an, an out, uh, right, or a trump card of some sort? Uh, and in fact, no. No, in fact, in fact, they contemplated this and they said, no, the president is not above the law in this regard. And they didn't feel it necessary because of the impeachment powers that once impeached um, and tried, uh, by the Senate, he could be convicted uh, for violating the law. Now, there there are other limits on the on the pardon power as well. So it can't apply, for instance, to future actions or offenses. It has to be to past actions. Uh, it can be used for individuals who have not been charged and convicted, right? So Ford pardoned Nixon. Carter pardoned all the Vietnam War draft invaders. Only the only a few had actually been prosecuted at the time or charged, but Carter just pardoned all of them. George H. W. Bush, um, you know, pardoned Casper Weinberger famously for Iran Contra. You know, ten days before the trial was due to start. Uh, so, uh, you know, a future president could pardon Trump. <laughs> that that's a scenario that could happen. Um, but Trump cannot pardon himself. I think that is that's that's fairly clear looking at the history of the Constitution as well as the articles of both impeachment um, and conviction by the Senate. How that was expected to operate. Uh, thanks so much uh, for that. Um, Sai, uh, what uh, is, is next in the investigation? And as you play things out, 
what constitutional claims uh, might it produce that that could rise up to the court system and even to the Supreme Court? Well, you know, it's hard to speculate, Jeff, but you know, you you might imagine that the president will try to claim some sort of executive privilege for conversations he had once he became president. Um, you know, you 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 might expect a, you know sort of a replay, if, as it were, of the of the Nixon tape uh, tapes case. Um, I'd expect the, the president's lawyers to make the the claim that I made earlier, which is that the statute shouldn't be read to apply to the president, or for that matter, federal judges, or for that matter, uh, federal prosecutors. That um, that when they talk about obstruction of justice, they're talking about private parties and not governmental actors using their authority, even if that authority is used corruptly. Um, but it's it's really you know they you know the. The investigation is launched, and it can go in any number of directions. And it's really hard to say in advance um, what what sort of claims will be brought to bear in federal court. Thanks so much for that, Laura. Your thoughts about what constitutional claims might arise from the investigation moving forward, and how might they be resolved? Well, I'd like to add one more point on the impeachment issue, which I think does bear on whether Trump could pardon himself, or that I forgot to mention before, and then I'll, I'll move to that question. Your, your second question. Um, you know, one thing, again, as an originalist matter to keep in mind, is at the founding, the articles of impeachment were modeled on what was the norm in the House of Commons and the House of Lords. So at that time, you know, the, the law lords were sitting in the House of Lords, and the, the impeachment, uh, the removal of officers of the crown could be removed without royal assent. So even where the king was trying to protect his subordinates, or the queen was trying to protect her subordinates, uh, they, the crown had no final say over the House of Lords. So the House of Commons impeached, and then the House of Lords would actually remove the officers, um, would, would convict them. And that same power was brought into the United States with, of course, our House of Representatives impeaching and our Senate than convicting a president. And they wanted to make it clear, because at the time, you know, in, in England, at the time of Charles I's beheading, he was tried by the Rump Parliament. He claimed that, that Parliament had no power to impeach the king. And so the idea was, not only could the king not stop prosecution or conviction of one of his subordinates, but the king himself was subject to the law. And so when it was brought into the United States, the, the president was explicitly in the Constitution made subject to the law. So th this all really speaks against the possibility that Trump would really be able to pardon himself. The whole point was to protect against that happening. So, so I just wanted to add that, that point to the impeachment discussion. Um, uh, and sorry, what was your question, just to move forward? Uh, subsequent constitutional claims that might arise from the investigation? I don't know. What a wonderfully honest answer. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what constitutional claims would arise. I, I feel, um, you know, in, in some ways, you know, this, uh, the era in which we live is kind of God's gift to con law professors everywhere, right? Because there are so many, right, important and interesting and difficult complex constitutional questions that we're facing. Um, and I think we still don't have a complete picture of what's happened or what the responses might be. So I think right now it's just too premature to say exactly what the constitutional questions uh, will be, but I look forward to discussing them in the future. Well, we'll certainly have many podcasts on it, and uh, it is indeed a, a, a gift to people who want to learn about the Constitution everywhere to be able to 
follow these issues uh, and hear the best arguments on both sides. It's time for closing arguments in this uh, great podcast. And Sai, the first one is to you, uh, based on the facts that we know so far, uh, is there a case uh, that President Trump obstructed justice or not? And can the president be guilty of obstruction of justice? Well, as I, as I said earlier, take the last question first, Jeff. Um, um, I think as a matter of impeachment, the president can be uh, impeached and removed for obstruction of justice. Um, I think the, the the standard for impeachment is is very broad, and 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 we've of course seen seen that before in the case of President Clinton. In the context of the statute, can the president commit obstruction of justice? As I said, there's an initial question as to whether the statute applies to the constitutional acts of the president, the constitutional acts of the court. Uh, or for that matter, the statutory acts of, of US prosecutors or the statutory acts of US officials generally. And, and I don't think that, that the answer to that is at all obvious. Um, and I think you'd have to decide that question first. Um, once you get over that question, then you have to ask, did the president act corruptly? And um, as we've discussed, you know, I think some people are more apt to find corruption. I think Alora's um, discussion, I think, approaches the, you know, I think I think her approach seems to suggest that any presidential involvement here is necessarily corrupt, and I guess I don't view it that way. Um, if if in fact the, the president feels like um, the prosecutor is doing something wrong, there's nothing wrong with firing the prosecutor or firing the investigator. Uh, and if he believes that someone um, should be um, given some lenience, there's nothing wrong with asking for it. Um, and it all turns on whether you think he's, you know, he's he's acting for a corrupt purpose, assuming that the statute applies. As as John and I mentioned in the our op-ed, we don't feel the president uh, that the, the, the information we have right now suggests that the president has acted for corrupt purposes. But we obviously understand that other people will disagree. Thanks so much, Laura. Last word to you. Uh, can the president be prosecuted for obstruction? And based on the facts we know now, is there a case that President Trump obstructed justice? So I, I think what this boils down to is, is anyone in the United States above the law? And the answer from U.S. history, from our culture, from our legal uh, domain is no. Uh, nobody, including, and at times especially the president really is above the law, right? This is how the Constitution was designed. It was the legacy of centuries of conflict in England and of understanding what the accumulation of power meant, uh, the idea that it would be concentrated in one hands and that one person could act in any manner whatsoever uh, was rejected by the founders, and, and it's for this reason that we have separation of powers and limits on the president. So, yes, we have presidential pardon powers, but these are limited, right? It's only for federal crimes, so the president can't override every state uh, court conviction. It's only, uh, uh, it's not in the cases of impeachment, so the president can't turn around and, and change the rules once somebody has been impeached. And the reason why goes back to our English heritage, that the House of Lords could convict somebody, the House of Commons could impeach them, and the, 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 that decision was not required, it was not required that, that royal assent be given, because the Crown couldn't protect their people, nor would the Crown be above the law. And so that was built into this. And when they rejected treason uh, as an exception uh, here in the pardon powers, it was with the understanding that the president would be subject to the law itself. So if you look at the, the investigation that's underway, the point at which the investigation is a judicial 
function and a function of the judicial branch, there is a very clear separation of powers concern at stake. And it was illustrated in the case of uh, U.S. versus Cox, that case from 1965 that we touched on, which is, you know, look, when the prosecutor is acting in concert with a grand jury and somebody is being indicted for a crime, and in this case, obstruction of justice is a crime under 18 U.S.C. 1515, right? It is, it is a crime. And if somebody is acting corruptly, which is uh, essentially uh, acting with improper purpose, and one could readily argue that subverting rule of law is an improper purpose, right, then, then we're in the realm of the, of the judicial function, and the executive cannot interfere in that function. So I think this is uh, a complex question and a difficult question, uh, but one that really goes to the heart of who we are as a country. Thank you so much, Laura Donahue and Cyprocash, for a vigorous, engaged, civil, and illuminating conversation about the latest constitutional turns in the Mueller investigation. Uh, we, the people listeners, we will be returning, of course, to this important uh, subject in the future and hope to have you both on again soon. Laura, Sai, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Ogana Etze and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich. Continue today's conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. Sign up to receive Constitution Weekly, our email roundup of constitutional news and debate at bit.ly forward slash Constitution Weekly. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. Also, please, We the People listeners, be sure to rate We the People on iTunes and other platforms. It helps others learn about what we do. And finally, despite that inspiring congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support. We rely on the engagement, passion for lifelong learning, dedication, and insistence on cultivating your faculties of reason and reasoning together that all of you demonstrate every week when you tune in and learn with me about the best arguments on all sides of the fundamental constitutional issues that face our country. Please join the National Constitution Center to signal your engagement and to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosenberg.